Here's what we're going to do. We're going to discuss the fall of the Roman Empire real quick. Right? I'm about to take a very complex subject and turn it in about three minutes. So here we go. All right? Don't worry about really trying to delve too deep in our first part of the, this discussion tonight. We're going to look at the fall of the Roman Empire, and then we're going to look at the barbarian invasion. Right? And you're going to be like, Kyle, this sounds more like a medieval European history class than it does a medieval church class. And the answer to that is you are correct. All right? But what we have to do is we have to set up what is going to happen after the barbarian invasions and how that affects the church. Does that make sense? Okay? All right. So the fall of the Western Empire. All right? It's a very complex subject. It has lots of debates. There are no two scholars that tend to agree what are the actual causes of the fall of the Western Empire. If I were Edward Gibbons, he's the one that wrote the famous The Fall of Rome book, he would say it's all 100% Christianity's fault. Right? Meanwhile, he totally ignores all that the church does afterwards when the barbarian invasion occurs. But he was a early 19th century Brit, and we don't really care. All right? Okay? All right. So what actually caused the Western Empire to fall? Well, it was turmoil, division, and corruption within the empire itself. Right? I don't know if you know this, but Rome isn't exactly the most decent empire that ever existed. Right? They are not. Am I off? Uh, they're not known for their morality. Right? Right? They're also not known for being the nicest people because, you know, they murdered like just about one out of every two of their emperors. All right? Not too many of them died of old age. Uh, Diocletian did just because he was like, I've had enough of this, I'm going to go raise cabbage. All right? Okay? Uh, it also fell, especially within that last 100 years, because Constantine was the last true strong emperor. After Constantine, you get a bunch of emperors that last maybe 18 months to two years, five years, 10 years at the most. And so they just keep going through this cycle of poor leaders. Right? Okay. Uh, the expansion of the Germanic and barbaric tribes, or barbarian tribes, from the northern frontier of the empire, coming down out of the Danube and the Rhine rivers, crossing those boundaries, that also led to the fall, because if you're not able to protect your borders, things are going to happen, all right? especially when they're coming at you with, in hundreds of thousands with swords and shields and spears. Right? Okay. Rome fell in AD 410 to Alaric of the Goths. The one thing about the barbarians is they had some really awesome names. Right? Alaric. We're going to get into multiple names of them tonight, but they had these really strong-sounding names. Uh, in AD 410, he f sacks Rome. There he is. Right? You, can tell the, you can tell the barbarians because they look barbaric, that long hair and their long beards. Right? And then look at the poor, innocent citizens of Rome. They look lost. They look pretty, right? Okay. The Germanic tribes settled their own kingdoms throughout the continents of Europe and Africa. 
the Vandals sacked Hippo in North Africa in AD 435. Um, in AD 476, the last emperor of the Western Empire was actually removed by Constantinople. Right? But by this time, emperors in the West are literally nothing more than a vassal of the East, meaning Constantinople controls Rome. Right? He, uh, he upset Constantinople, and so they sent an emissary to say, you're done. And that was the it. That was it. The Western Empire falls in AD 476. It is no longer a viable, active political entity. Okay? Buddy? That's the fall of Rome. Right? Somebody or something then has to rush into that vacuum that is left over politically. Right? That something is the church. Right? We're going to see how that happens. There's going to be the rise of two institutions. One of them is Western monasticism under Benedict. Right? We call it Benedictine monasticism. The second one is the papacy or the papacy. Right? We're going to discuss those two institutions today. From now on, when we discuss uh, church history up until... 1500 or 1517, what we're actually going to see is how monasticism and the papacy interact with one, with one another in Europe. Right? We could write an entire series of books, or just one chapter, if we didn't want to get too verbose, on how the papacy and how Western monasticism affect European history and affect church history. Does that make sense? Right? So monasticism and the papacy, right? Uh, the Eastern Empire is renamed the Byzantine Empire because Constantinople's name at one point was Byzantium, right? The Byzantine Empire will last for roughly another 1,000 years until AD 1454 when the Ottomans destroy the city, right? And then what happens in 1492? Columbus sails the ocean blue, all right? So it's not a whole lot of time between the fall of Constantinople and the quote-unquote discovery of the New World, which had already been discovered about 600 years beforehand by the Europeans, by the Vikings, all right? You see how close in time that is? That's pretty amazing, okay? All righty. Let's get into then early medieval Christianity. We're talking about 8450 to about 900, right? But let's set the stage first. This is what's going on in the rest of the world while all of this is actually happening. In 8496, Clovis is crowned the king of the Franks, right? We're not talking hot dogs, right? We're talking that, which, that group of people that then become France, right? In 8536, the world enters a little ice age, which has big impacts on crops and the increases of diseases. Do you know how I know that? Because five years later in 8541, based off the fact that they are still having crop problems and disease problems, the bubonic plague kills roughly 40% of the population of Constantinople, 25% of the population of Europe, and parts of Asia. It resurfaces in the 14th century, right? They call it 
the great mortality or the black death. Right? Where literally uh, the entire populations of hamlets and villages are totally wiped off the face of the earth and nobody ever sees them again. Right? So while this 40% sounds horrible, and I'm sure it was, and 25% of the major populations with the bubonic plague or black death, uh, you're looking at anywhere from 50 to 100% of the population in some places. All right, pretty bad. Okay. In AD 550, Muhammad is born in what is now Saudi Arabia. Okay. In AD 650, the Mississippian Cahokia culture arises in North America. Has anybody ever been to the mounds in Missouri and southern Illinois? These are giant earthen pyramids that the Mississippian Cahokia Indians created, right? And they last for about 600 years. Okay. In 732, Charles Martel wins the Battle of Tours. We'll get into that tonight. In 8821, Europe experiences a very rainy summer season causing crops. Uh, causing crops to rot, I should say. That winter is incredibly brutally cold as most major rivers actually freeze over. And we're not talking like six inches of ice, we're talking almost all the way down to the bottom. Now it's impossible for it to freeze all the way down because of the Earth's temperature, but sometimes it happens. Right? Could you imagine what that would do then to the increase of diseases? Right? You have no crops, you're not eating, right? And then the winters are brutally cold. How well do you think people did? Not too much, right? Okay. In 8850, the Vikings settled Greenland, right? Which is a misnomer because Greenland isn't green and Iceland isn't ice, okay? In 8900, the Mayan classical period ends as cities are deserted all over Mesoamerica. So basically, the peak of the Mayan culture is in 8900. Right? Kind of weird to think that all that's going on at the same time. But it's kind of neat. Okay? Alrighty. The barbarians. The fall of the Western Roman Empire led to the creation of numerous independent kingdoms and the dispersion of people groups that lasted until the end of the First World War. When did World War I end? close, 1918, right? So the barbarian people, which became the, ma the majority of the culture of Europe, these people groups that we're discussing in one shape or another, in one name or another, lasted until the Treaty of Versailles ended the First World War. That is 1,500 years later. That's crazy, okay? Right? In common society, the fall of the Western Empire led to societal ignorance. Now, what do I mean by that? Did society all of a sudden become dumb? Yes and no. Right? Yes, in the fact that common knowledge is lost. Right? Nobody's reading books the way they used to, or manuscripts the way they used to, codices as they used to. Right? Art takes a plunge, right? You, you see the neat classical Roman and classical Greek art and everything looks like it's anatomically perfect and, and it, all those busts and the sculptures are just fantastic. And then you look at early medieval art 
And you're like, a four-year-old can draw better than that. Some, somehow they lost perspective, right? They lost the ability and the learning on how to do that. Also, another example would be like concrete. The Romans developed concrete. They've developed a concrete that could actually cure underwater. That's not rediscovered until the late 19th century. That's almost 1,500 years later, right? That's kind of crazy, right? right? Now, there's still learning going on, so things aren't lost. You just kind of, like, this, like all this knowledge just kind of, like, thrown to the wayside, and people are left going, right? That's why scholars in the 19th century started calling this the Dark Ages. They weren't dark. They weren't dumb. They just somehow forgot stuff, right? We'll get into who brings all of that back here tonight, okay? Uh, the church is actually the keeper of ancient culture and ancient knowledge. We'll get into that tonight. And as a side effect, the church uh, increases the function and power of two institutions, Western monasticism and the papacy, the papacy. Okay? All right? All righty. Any questions so far? All right, I'm just going to start going through these barbarian tribes, and you can stop me when you have questions. All right, I'd like to get more into Western monasticism and the papacy tonight than anything else, but we need to know where these are coming from. Okay, what does the word barbarian mean? It comes from the classical Greek barbaros, B-A-R-B-A-R-O-S, barbaros. Right? It literally means gibberish, okay? It's, or not understandable, right? It's like somebody came up like, what did that sound like? Blah, 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 right? The classical Greeks applied the word barbaros to anybody who didn't speak Greek. So the Egyptians, who had a phenomenal culture and society at the time, were called barbarians. And you're like, they created the pyramids, the great sphinx. They had all this wonderful culture. How on earth can they be called barbarians? Well, it's because they spoke Egyptian, and the Greeks spoke Greeks, and the Greeks looked down on everybody that didn't speak Greek. Those are barbarians, right? Okay? So the, to the Greeks, it included the Egyptians, the Persians, the Medes, anybody that just did not speak Greek, right? Then the Romans took the word, right? Rome had about this much creativity in its bones because it usually stole everything it took or everything it had from other cultures. Right? Here's an example. The Greek god Zeus in, right, is actually Jupiter in Rome, in the Roman pantheon. Right? They were like, oh, we need a supreme god. Jupiter, I think the Greeks actually meant Jupiter and not Zeus. But then when you look at the history of it, the development of those gods, Zeus, Zeus is a thousand years before Jupiter even comes up as a name, right? So they just kind of took everything and said, oh, it's Roman. They did the same thing to Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, right? It's called Virgil's Aeneid. That's literally what that is, right? Uh, so the Romans took the word and applied it to anybody not Roman. The Germanics, the, Celt, the Celts, excuse me, the Gauls, the Iberians, the Berbers, the Thracians, the Illyrians, right? Get the point? 
you're not Roman, therefore you're a barbarian. Okay? It didn't matter what your culture looked like. If you weren't Roman, you were therefore a barbarian. Right? Let's get into the tribes. The Vandals. The Vandals are from East Germany, or what was now East Germany and Poland. Uh, they're an East Germanic tribe, uh, modern-day uh, southern Poland and eastern Germany. For over 400 years, they were kept at bay by the Roman legions across the Rhine River. But in AD 407, they crossed the Rhine River. You want to find that and circle that for me? The Rhine, yep, see, keep going. Now it kind of goes west, there you go, or east, excuse me. What? They crossed the Straits of, okay, so they, they crossed the Rhine, they start moving west, they wandered through Spain and France, raping, pillaging, burning, you know, all the good things a barbarian does, okay? They crossed the Straits of Gibraltar in AD 429, so the Straits of Gibraltar are the, those two tips, southern Spain and, and Morocco, right? Marched all the way across the east, right? And in AD 439, they sacked Carthage. Why? Because it was in the way. Right? They then crossed the Mediterranean over to Sicily, right? Because see how close Carthage is to Sicily? Right? And they sacked Sicily, right? And there they stopped. But now they are the rulers of all of North Africa. Right? Okay? They were Aryan in their Christology. That's interesting. Right. They persecuted Catholics and Donatists alike. They didn't care, just as long as you were Aryan. Right. In AD 455, they made it all the way to Rome, and they sacked Rome worse than the Goths did in AD 410. And then in AD 533, the Byzantine Empire came in and wiped them out of North Africa, where they retreated up to Spain. There it is. That's the Vandals, right? Guess which word we get from the Vandals? Vandalize, vandalism, van, right, exactly, right? Because a vandal is somebody who does all sorts of horrible things to people and to property, right? All right, now we're going to look at the Goths. There's about a bazillion types of Goths. We're going to look at a couple of them here. We're going to look at the Visigoths, or the Visigoths, V-I-S-I-G-O-T-H-S. Their origins are somewhat clouded. Don't really know exactly where in Europe they came from. Uh, but by the fall of the Western Empire, they're already situated in Western Europe, in what is Western Germany and France. Okay? In AD 378, they defeat the Romans at Adrianopol, which is near Constantinople. Don't worry about where that is. Uh, and then they sweep up the Balkans, what is modern-day, uh, uh, or I guess it's not Yugoslavia anymore, is it? Right? The former Yugoslavia. <laughs> right? Okay. And then they go back to the West, and in AD 415, they were in Spain, and they ruled there until they were overthrown by the Muslims in the 8700s and 8800s. Right? Okay. By the Moors. They, too, were Aryan in their Christology, but they did not persecute the Orthodox or the Donatists. They didn't really get into North Africa, so don't worry about the Donatists anyway. They converted to Nicene Orthodoxy when their king, Recared, R-E-C-A-R-E-D, 
They have amazing names. Recarebs, right? He says, I kind of like the fact that you guys, you Nicene Orthodox Christians, keep culture. I want to be a a Nicene Orthodox. Gregory, who we're going to look at later here when we look at the papacy, is the one that actually crowns him. Okay? Right? Now, during this time, the church, or, yeah, during this time, the church actually plays an important role in the Visigothic Empire. They play the legislators of the empire, meaning they help create laws, they help create uh, a society that is stable. All right? it's, it's a really interesting dynamic that the Visigoths and the uh, church develop. It's one of the reasons why Recared decides to convert to Nicene Orthodox Christianity. So, they become, the church becomes the legislator of the Visigothic kingdom. Uh, The most famous of the Visigoths is Saint Isidore of Seville. Where is Seville? Spain, right? He has his own opera, or at least the Barbara does, right? Okay. Isidore, here he is, San Isidora, right? He looks very Visigothic, I guess. I'm not sure what a Visigoth looks like, but that would be it, I guess. Right? He lives from 8560 to 8636. He is the Christian leader that comes from the Visigoths. He is a scholar. He, uh, he preserves uh, not only ancient culture, but Christian culture as much as he could. He wrote a book entitled The Etymologies, which literally is just the etymologies, E-T-Y-M-O-L-O-G-I-E-S. Etymologies is just like, uh, like when you look at the etymology of a word, is where does it come from? Basically, the etymologies is a giant encyclopedia. Where does this aspect of culture come from? Well, it comes from here. Where does, you know, why do we do this this way? Okay, that was, those are the types of books that he wrote. Mul- multiple volumes, but they just call it the etymologies. Uh, Isidore is important for one other thing. He was instrumental in something called the Council of Toledo. It was not in Ohio. It was in Spain. All right, 8633, the council. Right? Here's the important part of the Council of Toledo. It has a lot of injustices in it. Right? The church is going to do some really stupid things in this council. Right? Number one, at this time, priests in the Catholic Church, small c, are allowed to marry. They can marry whomever they want. Right? Okay? The Council of Toledo says now that priests could only marry with their bishop's permission. Right? But if they marry outside of that permission, the priests had to do penance for some time. What that was, what the penance was depended on the priest. Or depended on the bishop, excuse me. So he could say, you have to do 100,000 push-ups. I don't whatever it was, right? Okay. The wife was taken away and sold by the bishop into slavery. Raise your hand if you think that's fair. <laughs> okay. Adam thinks it's incredibly fair. We'll ask Keely later. 
Jews could not be forced to convert to Christianity. And you're like, well, that sounds fairly justifiable, right? You don't want to force somebody to accept Jesus. You want them to, you know, you want to spread the gospel and you want to witness to them, and that's great. Well, there's a lot of forced conversions at this time. But Jews are not supposed to be forced to to convert to Christianity. Those who were previously forced into Christianity cannot go back to Judaism because that's blasphemy. Right? Okay? Jews converts, uh, any Jewish person that converts to Christianity could not have any contact with Jews still practicing Judaism. So they couldn't, couldn't talk with their family members. Right? If you did, you were thrown in prison and whipped. Right? If a Jew, uh, if Jews are forced into Christianity, if any Jews found, forced into Christianity were found following traditional Jewish practices, now that can be circumcision, that could be honoring some of the high holidays, their kids were forcibly kidnapped from them and sold. Okay, well, that makes You're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right? A Jewish man married to a Christian woman could either convert or leave his wife and kids. Right? A Jewish woman married to a Christian man could either convert or leave the children with the father. That's the Council of Toledo. Right? Not very, uh, not very good. There's not a lot of justice in any of that. Right? That was sanctioned by the church. How would you feel if the church did that today? I hope all of us in this room would stand up and be like, uh, no. Right? Okay. But it's one of those dark stains on Christianity. And I'm going to tell you this, the Council of Toledo has a dramatic effect between the relationships between Jews, Muslims, and Christians in Spain even today. The Council of Toledo is one of the justifiable acts that led to the Spanish Inquisition, or at least they thought was a justifiable act. At that point in the Spanish Inquisition, they're like, oh no, you can force somebody become a Christian. All right, those are the Visigoths. The Ostrogoths, O-S-T-R-O-G-O-T-H-S. They originated in the Black Sea region. Where's the Black Sea? Well, it's right there. Right just above Turkey. Okay, there it is. They've been there for a while. In fact, the last Ostrogoth settlement in the Crimea ended after World War I. Uh, You're going to love this. They were invited by Emperor Zeno out of the Eastern Empire to invade Italy and rid him of a problematic vassal. So there was this lower king that they had put over in Italy, and Emperor Zeno of the East said, hey, would you come get rid of this dude for us? He's kind of causing me problems, and I I don't want him in here anymore. They were also Aryan, and that created conflicts with the elder population in the Italian peninsula who were Nicene Orthodox. They were persecuted, often because the Ostrogoths thought that Nicene Orthodox Christians were plotting treason. That was the only reason. They were kind of paranoid that Nicene Orthodox Christians were constantly plotting treason. Right? Uh, they were finally defeated and absorbed by the Lombards. 
who invaded the Italian peninsula during the 8th century. Right? So they were, they were just gotten rid of when the Lombards invaded, invaded the Italian peninsula. Right? Those are the Ostrogoths. Now we get into the fun ones, the Burgundians and the Franks. They're from Gaul. Where's Gaul? Anybody? Modern-day France, parts of, parts of Spain as well. G-A-U-L, Gaul, G-A-U-L. Right. What does the name Burgundian sound like? Burgundy, France. Guess who gave rise to the name of Burgundy? The Burgundians, all right? Now, the Franks gave their name to Frankfurt. That is a true statement, but also the country of France, all right? So the Burgundians gave their name to the region Burgundy, right, which grows wine grapes. I mean, it's wine, Burgundy wine, right? And then the Franks gave their name to the country of France, right? Okay. The Burgundians were Aryan, but like the Visigoths, they impressed their Catholic guard. Uh, they were so impressed that the Catholics guarded custom that they converted to Nicene Orthodoxy. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? How that? I'm not. I'm, I'm still blown away by that. Uh, their entire kingdom became Nicene Orthodox when the king, King Sigismund, S-I-G-I-S-M-U-N-D, Sigismund, converted to Nicene Orthodoxy in AD 515. Right? Once the king goes, so goes the entire kingdom. So if the king said, I want to start dyeing my hair purple, guess what the entire kingdom is going to start doing? Right? Once the king says, I want to become a Nicene Orthodox Christian, guess what the kingdom is going to say? I, too, want to become a Nicene Orthodox Christian. So a lot of it wasn't necessarily true conversion. It was more of a, hey, this might be a good fashion statement to follow. Right? Okay? Right? The Franks, though, that was, he was, that was the Burgundians. The Franks were pagans to the core. They made no qualms about it, right? But they didn't care if you were a Christian or not. They just wanted to be the Franks, right? They were all about the Franks, right? They were finally united under Morovius. Don't worry about names on this, but Morovius, who lived from 80, uh, in 8410, uh, giving rise to the Morovian dynasty. Morovius's grandson is Clovis, who we talked about there at the very beginning when we were setting up what all's going on. Right? Clovis is converted to Christianity and was baptized on Christmas Day in AD 496, which just happened to be the exact same day he was crowned king of the Franks. So he was baptized and king, baptized as a Christian and crowned king of the Franks on Christmas Day, AD 496. Man, it's a good day. Plus all the presents. Can you imagine that? Right? I mean, he's got people coming all around, all of his uh, other aristocracy groups, his nobles, right? It's like, hey man, not only did you become a Christian today, that's fantastic. Got crowned king of the Franks. Look at those sweet kicks you got. You know, or man, your coffers just got thrown in with a bunch of money. Way to go you, right? That's, that's how I want to spend my next birthday. <laughs> Being crowned king of the Franks. Right? <laughs> so in 8534, the Franks conquered the Burgundians, right, and united all of Gaul. 
but these later Morovian kings were kind of weak and petty. Uh, the kingdom was ruled mainly by chamberlains. Now, a chamberlain is an old name for a prime minister. Okay? Right? So while the kings went off and did whatever they were doing, the prime minister or the chamberlains were the actual ones running the kingdom. Okay? One of those chamberlains is a man by the name of Charles Martel, M-A-R-T-E-L, and he defeats the Muslims at the Battle of Tours in 8732. Right? Here's why that's important. Because Charles Martel right, becomes a man of power. He basically usurps the throne, right? but he still keeps the name Chamberlain. He then has a son named Pepin the Short, because, you know, he was short, right? right. Who, with the Pope's permission, Pope Zacharias, ousts the last Morovian king. Here's the Morovian king's name. Are you ready? Childeric. It looks like child, E-R-I-C. Childeric the Stupid. <laughs> All right? Now, I'm not sure Childeric was actually stupid, but in order to make him look stupid, people like Pepin the Short would then give him this nickname. Right? And it was a way to say, my usurping the throne is justified. All right? So Pepin the Short usurped the throne from Childeric the Stupid. All right? Yes. Yes, it is. Ready? Here's the important... <laughs> With a peanut gallery, please. Here's the important thing about uh, Pepin the Short and his creation of this new dynasty. The new dynasty he creates is called the Carolinian dynasty because his son is a man by the name of Charlemagne. Pepin the Short's son is Charlemagne, and Charlemagne actually does a better job of unifying the Franks. All right? uh, and Charlemagne, as we will learn not next week, but in two weeks, Charlemagne begins the <coughs> true connection between church and state that arises in Europe. All right? Because he becomes the quote-unquote first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, All right? which is not holy nor Roman nor an empire. Old Saturday Night Live. Throw that. Anyway, doesn't matter. Okay. But during the Morovian Dynasty, the church was content to obey the king's will. Bishops were given large tracts of land and were basically landed nobility, and they acted more like lords and less like pastors. Okay. Once again, not a very pretty picture of the church. They become very wealthy, and as they become very wealthy, and they take lots of land from people. Do you think they're going to act in justice towards people? No, they're going to be very mean towards people. All right? That has a direct link to the French Revolution because one of the problems in the French Revolution is this. You had three estates in the French Revolution, or in France. All right? You had the nobility, which is the king and all of his nobles. You had the cleric, and then you had the commoners. Right? One of the biggest problems that the commoners had wasn't necessarily against Louis XVI and the crown. It was against the church because the church had all of this wealth, all of this power, and they did nothing 
to ease the problems of the poor and the common. Right? When were those sown? When were those seeds sown? 1,300 years before it even happens. Right? Okay? Does that make sense? Right? Okay. Those are the Burgundians and the Franks. The Anglo-Saxons and the Irish. These are my people. Britannia was never really fully ruled by the Romans, right? We've all heard of Hadrian's Wall, right? Runs up and separates basically Scotland from England, right? The Romans didn't like the fact that the Picts and the Scots, the two people groups that come out of Scotland for the most part, uh, they didn't like the fact that they were A, good warriors, and B, that they would just raid in and out all the time. So Hadrian builds this wall. You can go to Scotland today and or northern England today and see Hadrian's wall. Parts of it still stand. Right? And it was there for two or three hundred years. Right? Okay. Anytime though a threat required the Roman legions to withdraw from Britannia to the continent, most Roman inhabitants followed with them because they were their family members. Right? Plus where the army goes your livelihood goes, right? So if I'm making horseshoes for Roman cavalry and the cavalry up and leaves because they need to be fighting wars on the continent, what happens to my livelihood? Well, it goes down the tank, so I'm going to go follow them back to the, right, follow them back to the, the continent. Right? The remaining Roman inhabitants were eventually conquered by the Angles and the Saxons, rising to seven kingdoms, Kent, Essex, Sussex, East Anglia, Wessex, Northumbria, and Mercia. Don't worry about the names. All right? I will tell you this, though. Essex and Sussex and Wessex are connected. Essex means east. Sussex means south. Right? And Wessex means west. Okay? That's kind of neat. Right? And they will remain in, uh, the same, basically, until 1066, when William the Conqueror, there it is. Whew. He had a lot of names, and most of them were really bad. <laughs> uh, like William the Unfathered Kid, if you know what I'm saying, <laughs> begins with a B, right? right? Until William the Conqueror conquers England in, on October 15th, 1066, right? Okay. Ireland, on the other hand, was never part of the Roman Empire. Right? So how Christianity got there is anybody's guess. Except we know one person that got Christianity there, and we celebrate his day every March 17th. Who is it? St. Patrick. That's right. Okay. He was actually from Wales. He's not even Irish. Right? So that's a bummer. He was actually kidnapped by Irish raiders in Wales, and then spent all of his life in Ireland. He escaped from slavery, went back to Wales. God got a hold of his heart and said, these people need me just like you needed me, so get your butt back there. And he did, right? Now, Irish Christianity develops a little bit differently than it does everywhere else. 
meaning that instead of like a hierarchy in the church, it's actually monastic communities that are head of the church, right? So people like St. Patrick would form his own monastery, right? And then from there, in what looked like almost little outposts, they went out all over the place. There are, there are literally Irish monasteries today in North Africa because of people like St. Patrick, right? That's kind of cool, right? Okay. Uh, they became famous for the monasteries, sending missionaries out to the rest of Europe. They did go to Scotland as well. Their famous missionary there is St. Columba, C-O-L-U-M-B-A, uh, C-O-L-U-M-B-A, St. Columba, right? And they continued to, uh, to found missionary, uh, excuse me, found monasteries. And like in Ireland, the leadership of the monastic communities uh, are the ones that led the church and not bishops, okay? Uh, they also celebrated a different date for Easter, right? But that was settled by the Synod of Whitby in 8663, right? Okay? Then all of Ireland, Scotland, and England were like, hey, we're going to celebrate Easter on the same day. And everybody was like, great, okay? Saved a lot of bloodshed. I'm not sure what it is about dates in history, but when you celebrate a different date, even if it was, even if it was a week later, right? Even if it's a week later, people just up in arms about it. But uh, they finally got together at the Synod of Whitby and said, it's probably a good idea that we do this, right? So what they did is they're like, oh, let's just celebrate the ones that the Roman church celebrates, and off they went, okay? Right, now, why is this all important? You're thinking, I don't know, why on earth did you go on so long about the barbarians? Well, here's why. Because the post-Western Roman Empire from 5th century to the 8th century was marked by invasions of Germanic tribes, creating chaos and havoc throughout the populations and among the peoples. All right? And though they were mainly Aryan in Christology, some were pagan, like the Franks, they were eventually converted to Orthodox, uh, Nicene Orthodoxy, but the important part is this. In the midst of all of this chaos, the Nicene Orthodox Christians are the guardians and the keepers of culture, ancient culture and modern, I'm going to say modern culture, culture at that time. Right? They are the ones who understood that it was necessary to, to keep this knowledge as best as they can or at least relearn it. It's going to take them a long time to relearn some of that stuff, right? Also, the church stepped in to bring order as best they could to the chaos, sometimes acting like local legislatures. And as we see in a minute with the papacy, stepping in and acting almost like the kings of the regions, okay? But due to the chaos and the havoc, the barbarian invasion strengthened the two institutions of the monasteries, Western monasticism, and the office of the Pope, okay? If you don't get anything else out of the barbarian invasions, know that because of the barbarian invasions, two important institutions arose in the church of the Western Empire, Western monasticism and the office of the Pope, okay? Any questions? There's a lot of information. See, that was more, more or less like a, a medieval European lesson, right? Which is fine because we have to set up the background. Yes, sir? What was the foundation of the 
anywhere from 500,000 to 1.5 million. That, that doesn't seem, you're like, oh, you know, that's eh, whatever, right? And Europe, Europe's waste is like half the size of the continental United States, maybe a third of the size of the continental United States. But you're talking nomadic people. I don't know about you. I mean, it's hard to get five people to go in the same place at the same time, all herded together. Could you imagine trying to move half a million to 1.5 million people, thousands of miles in a coordinated effort, right? Some of them went from what is now Eastern Europe all the way down and across North Africa. That's a lot of space to call, to, to walk through, right? So yeah, so that's, you know, 10,000 people might be a little bit more manageable, but no, these are half a million to 1.5 million people. Yeah, and their baggage, right? right? So their, their baggage trains must have been ginormous, right? Okay. Western monasticism, or monasticism, Western monasticism, okay? It's more practical in its nature when compared to Eastern monasticism. Remember when we talked about Eastern monasticism, we said that people just kind of got tired of any type of interaction between the church and the state, and so they just ran out into the desert and became, and just plopped their butts in a section of land that nobody was around. That's not Western monasticism. Western monasticism is purposeful, and it is planned. It is purposeful, and it is planned. Okay? Right? Instead of people heading out in droves to the desert, people are heading out to actual compounds. Okay? It is centered on an organized community life. And because it is centered on a more organized community life, there's more interaction with local churches, right? And so therefore, Western monasticism has less of a tension with the church than Eastern monasticism does. Eastern monasticism is a result of the church and state trying to meld under Constantine, not so much with Western monasticism. Now. There is some aspects of Eastern monasticism within Western monasticism, right? In Eastern monasticism, I want to escape all of this, right? Or because martyrdom has been taken away from us, I want to go out and live a life that is totally devoted to scripture, right? There's some of that in Western monasticism, right? Also in Western monasticism, it became fashionable for nobility or just really rich people to send their youngest sons and daughters to convents for the ladies and, and uh, monasteries, thank you, I am tired tonight, monasteries for their sons. Why is that? Well, we have two older sons and they split the, they split the wealth and then you have nowhere else to send your young, nothing to send your younger son or your younger daughter, right? Because usually if you had more than two daughters, you try to marry them off to rich families as well. But by the time the third one comes around, you don't have a, any type of wedding gifts or what is that called? Dowry, thank you, geez. Dowry to give because you're all out of money. So you send them to convents, right? So it became a dumping ground for the, Rich and famous. <laughs> okay. 
when we get into the Cistercians uh, in two weeks, we'll talk about Bernard de Clairvaux or Bernard of Clairvaux, who's a, a very famous person that was the younger son and founded his own monastery. The same with St. Francis of Assisi, right? Same thing, okay, yes sir? No. Uh, no, they're still rural, but they don't go as far from the cities. So you'll have the city, and then maybe three or four kilometers outside of the city, you'll have a monastery or a convent. Okay? Right? That way, there's still interaction. They're still separate, but there's still interaction within the local community. Does that make sense? The person responsible for Western monasticism as we know it is Benedict. We have a picture of Benedict. There he is. You can tell he's a saint because he has a halo. That's the only reason why you can tell he's a saint. Right? Benedict is from Italy, or what has become Italy. He was born in AD 480 in Nursia. It is now, you can go to his house today or his city today. It's Norcia, N-O-R-C-I-A is the modern city name in uh, modern-day Italy. It's in the north-central Italian peninsula. He was born during the time of the Ostrogoths, and as we'd already discovered, the Ostrogoths were not really nice people, right? Okay, there was always that tension between the Nicene Orthodoxy and the Ostrogoths, and the Ostrogoths were always afraid that everybody was involved in some sort of conspiracy against them. His family was old Roman aristocracy. They were very wealthy and they held to Nicene Orthodoxy, right? And like any good 20-year-old male at his time, he became burdened by his wealth and prestige and his family name, and he goes, I'm going to throw this off, and I'm going to become an ascetic monk, because that's what you do. You just get tired of everything that's going on around you, and you throw a fit, and so you leave mom and dad's house, you go out to the country, and you find a place to just sit by yourself, right? But he becomes an ascetic monk, right? We discussed that ascetic monk just means basically by yourself, right? The irony is this, he had a bunch of followers, so you can't really be an ascetic monk if you have a bunch of followers, right? So, as his fame increases, he and his followers open up a monastery at Monte Cassino, right? M-O-N-T-E, Cassino, C-A-S-S-I-N-O, right? Okay. Monte Cassino was practically leveled during the Second World War uh, when the Germans were actually in the second monastery that was there, and the U.S. artillery practically low leveled that mountain. So he opens up a monastery at, Casino, at Monte Cassino. His sister, Scholastica, which is a fantastic name, soon opened a woman's community, or a women's community, not far from Monte Cassino. Now that's typical in medieval spirituality, right? So older brother goes and opens up a monastery, you know, because he's super spiritual, and younger sister sees the same thing and goes, 
and goes and opens a woman's convent. Right? Now, if my younger sister did that today, I don't know if she's full of it. <laughs> right? So, and if she were here tonight, she would probably say yes, correct. Right? But she's finishing up her bathroom tonight. His greatest contribution, though, to, mon to monasticism is not his communities. We already know that there were other communities. We talked about that in Cenobitic mon uh, monasticism. Right? Cenobitic just meaning that everybody comes together and lives communally. There's a common life. Cenobitic. Common life. Right? What Benedict is famous for are his rules. They are literally called the rules of Benedict. Right? Keep it simple. Right? What are these? These are the rules of Benedict. Great. Who made them? Benedict. What are they? The rules. Hamilton. Do you not know how to read? No. Oh, okay. Because I'm, you know, from the 7th century AD. Oh, okay. Right? It's a very brief document. It takes up one page of vellum. Right? Vellum is sheepskin, right? Used for writing. But there it is. That's the entire rule of St. Benedict. Right? It's also a very gracious document because it was written with the idea that human beings are fallible creatures, right? They are not perfect in any way, shape, or form, all right? So with this in mind, Benedict writes them uh, to be a very compassionate and gracious document, and I'll tell you what they are, all right? The rules of Benedict seek to order a monastic life with strict discipline. So the goal is to set up discipline within a community. You don't want everybody just running around doing their own thing, right? That causes chaos, right? When you're trying to do something together, chaos is not the rule to, go, to live by, right? Under these rules, every monk got two meals a day that had to include two cooked dishes, right? So it was like a potluck on every day, right? And included fresh fruits and veggies, okay? Each monk received a moderate amount of wine each day. Not bad, I guess. All right. Each monk received a bed, a cover, and a pillow. So you got two square meals. All right. Basically, you got two hots and a cot. Right. <laughs> and something to take the take the dullness away. You got some wine. All right. Now, all of these were dependent on whether or not you were in a season of plenty, right? Because if you were not in a season of plenty, if something was going on like a famine or something like that, it was expected of the monks to give everything that they had to the community that they lived down the street from. All right, so they weren't there just to grow fat and happy, which is actually what ended up happening. All right? But from the very beginning, Benedict was like, no, we've got to... We've got to do something to make sure that people are taken care of, right? So during times of famine or any type of warfare or anything like that, it was the monks who then took care of the population. That makes sense, right? So you got two hots and a cot, some meal, some wine to dole the day away, and then during times of of uh, famine or hardship, the monks were expected to sacrifice their needs for the welfare of others, okay? Right. 
but the very mo the most important aspects of the rules of Benedict are that one monastic life is to be permanent. So one monastic life is permanent. What do I mean by that? I mean once you've settled down in one monastery, say Monte Cassino, don't go saying, "Oh, hey, I want to go live now at this mon at this." monastery. No, you stayed where you were, okay? That will change, but for the most part, it is true even today. Okay? Like if you go to the Trappist monk up in uh, near Abilene, I believe it is, there's a Trappist monk monastery up there. Um, all monasteries today, I don't care if you're Benedictine, Augustine, uh, Jesuits, I don't care what branch they come from, they all still follow the rules of Benedict. That's kind of cool, right? It's still lasting today. So, so it's permanent. All right. The element of permanence proves to be of great benefit during times of instability within the church and within greater society. At least there's something solid to stand on. We know that this monastery is still going to be there, okay? Or this convent is still going to be there. The second one. So permanence, the second aspect of Benedict's rules that's of importance is that it's one of obedience. So it's permanence, I'm going to stay put, and obedience. Now what does obedience mean? Obedience to whom? Obedience to what? So let me throw out an idea. What am I being obedient to? Just saying it, it doesn't matter. You could be right or wrong, it doesn't matter. The rules, right? that's it. You're, you're obedient to the rules. You're not obedient to God. You're obedient to the rules. Right? Okay? Right. You're obedient to the rules. Right? To the rule itself, and secondly, to the abbot. Now, what is the abbot? A-B-B-O-T. T. Two T's? No. Yes, one T. A-B-B-O-T. The abbot literally means, it's we get it from the word Abba, father, but he's the head monk. Right? It's kind of like, uh, what's the head sister? I don't know. Mother superior. Yeah. It's been a while since I've watched Sound of Music. So <coughs> I can never remember that. Right? So the abbot. So you are obedient to the rules, and you're obedient to the guy that's leading the monastery, to the abbot. Disobedient monks are to be punished. First, they are admonished secretly. Right? If after two secret admonitions that does not work, that monk is to be brought before the community and reprimanded. Okay? Right? If that doesn't work, he is to be excommunicated. Now, here's what I mean by excommunication. Basically, he's not allowed to take communion, he's not allowed to have common meals, and he's not allowed to communicate with other monks. There's no real vows of silence at this point. Right? Okay? You're just not allowed to socialize with other people. You're locked in your cell all day long. Right? Or in the kitchen doing work. Okay? Right? So you're not allowed to take communion during worship service. You're not allowed to have meals with your fellow monks. 
and you're not allowed to communicate with your fellow monk. Okay? If that still doesn't work, you've got one stubborn brother on your hands. Right? He is to be whipped. 25 lashes. Stripped to the waist and whipped. Okay? If that doesn't work, he is to be finally expelled totally from the community. Why? Because he was not obedient to the rules. Okay. Now, here's the great news. You can be forgiven up to three times and received back in the community three times. After that third time, Jamie, you're on your fourth time because you know how you would be. He can no longer be part of the community and is expelled from any type of monastery forever. He cannot go from one monastery to the next. Okay? Why do you think that is? Why do you think he's not allowed? That's exactly right. You've got a problem child on your hands. Right? And you're just going to bring chaos to the order that's there. Right? Can't be doing That is a question for the ages. Because you, you wouldn't know, right? How, how well was communication during that time period? None. And if they get, yeah, exactly, right? It takes forever to go from point A to point B anyway. And if they gave you a note that said, sorry, Kyle, you're not allowed to go, I'd walk out the gate and be like, okay, throw that on the ground and just go walk out and get into another monastery, right? So it's very difficult to, right? Very difficult to, what's that? That might be a good sign. They might strip you to the waist and double check. You know, why, why, is, some, why is some wandering monk? <laughs> the, beatings will or the beatings will continue until morale increases, right? Right? Darn, did you have a question? No, because I can't remember. Okay. The rules also insisted on physical labor. From monasteries, we get eventually the development of European cuisine. Let me say that again. From monasteries, we eventually get the development of European cuisine. Right? They've got all this time on their hands. They're growing wheat. They're growing grapes. They're growing vegetable gardens. They're raising livestock. All right? Guess who learns how to cook? The brothers. Ready? We get champagne because of monks. Because somehow it, the wine somehow becomes carbonated. And they're like, hey. Right? We get uh, other types of wine. Actually, we get cappuccinos for some of the same, same reason. The cappuccine monks in Italy. They're brewing coffee and they're like, let's go for twice as much caffeine and a little amount, and let's just call it great. <laughs> right? Okay. Right? Okay. So physical labor was part of it. Raising livestock, doing agriculture, building, right? They become some great architects, 
that. So you weren't allowed to just sit all day and contemplate your belly button. You're expected to do your work. Okay? That makes sense? Right? Okay. Now, that's going to have some problems. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, you were also, at the core of the rule, was prayer. Right? The core of the rule was community time in prayer. Eight times a day. Guess what time you got up in the morning? Four. Because you had to work. But you would go through matins, M-A-T-I-N-S, lauds, L-A-U-D-S. Lauds comes from the Latin word laudere. It means to praise. Okay, Prime, terse, sext, none, spelled none, N-O-N-E. I'm going to tell you what these words mean here in a second. Vespers and compline. Right? You're like, wow, that sounds really Roman. And you're right does, but it also sounds very Anglican and very Eastern, right? Matins, very first thing in the morning, right, for an hour. Right? All of this is done with the Psalms and the New Testament, mainly the Psalms. They're singing them, and if I'd have been smart, I would have pulled up a Matins on YouTube. We'll do that next week, okay? It's gorgeous. They're just singing the Psalms, right? It's, you think Gregorian chants? That's basically what they're doing. Lauds, prime. Prime means one. All right? Okay? It's not really, it, prime means the first hour of the day, right? But it was not actually the first hour of worship. It was the third hour of worship. It's confusing. Don't worry about it. All right? Terse means three. Okay? So you did that one on the third hour of the day, which usually prime and terse were in between breakfast. Breakfast was in between. Sext, sext is the sixth hour of the day. Right? Now normally, the sixth hour of the day was noon. Right? I know I said they got up at four, right? but the day didn't start till six. Right? Right? Their math was awful. Right? <laughs> But the sixth hour is at noon. It usually preceded lunch. You would go to sext. It would last about 45 minutes, and then you would go eat. None, N-O-N-E, means nine. It's on the ninth hour of the day, which is three in the afternoon. So in between sext and none, you worked. Okay? All right? Then you had... Vespers, which was right after dinner, and it was candlelight, right? Candlelight Vespers, we had that for Easter. We had a Vespers service, candlelight Vespers service, right? It was done at nighttime, and all you had was candlelight going on. And then you had Compline, and this is the one where I would have really hated to have to get up and do this one. This was at midnight. <laughs> Vespers lasted an hour. And then you go to bed. And then you get up at midnight. And you go for another hour. And then you go to bed. And you get up at 4 o'clock. And your day would start all over again. And you do the exact same thing over and over and over again. Right? So eight times. Matins, lauds, prime, terse, sect, none, vespers, and compline. 
those all became known as the divine office. Right? And that term divine office is used in the Eastern Church, the English Church, or the Church of England, the Anglicans, and the Roman Catholics. So it is not just one single branch of Christianities. Right? That's used in all three. Roman Catholic, Protestantism, and the East. Okay? Alright? Yes, ma'am? Both. Both. A lot of their prayers were just praying the Psalms. Right? Because in, in the divine office, you're singing the Psalms and parts of the New Testament. So they memorized literally every single Psalm and just about all of the New Testament. And then the Old Testament would be read and preached on Sundays. Right? So they got the entire scripture every single day. Every single day. Oh, how I wish we did that here. Because it, it makes such a, a dramatic impact to be able to read through all of God's scripture and not just focus on the Psalms of the New Testament or the Old Testament. But if you get through all of it, you see the entire same story all the way through. Okay? That's my preaching for the week. Study also became the occupation for many monks, and many monasteries became centers of learning, which eventually led to the founding of some of the most famous universities in all of Europe. The University of Paris, and then two in England, Oxford and Cambridge. Ready? Okay. But also... Who did I say was the guardian of ancient culture? The church, okay? It's in these studies, it is in these studies that many manuscripts, biblical and secular manuscripts, were handed down, copied, and thus preserved for posterity, right? The oldest copy of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey that we have were copied in the 9th century AD by monks. And it wasn't probably because they found manuscripts of it and copied it down. It was because somebody had both of those ginormous epic poems memorized and they sat there and wrote it all down. Now, by the time they were copied in the 9th century, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey were already 1,200 years old. That's crazy, right? Okay. They also did the same with biblical texts, and they would do the same with uh, medical texts, uh, Arabic medical texts, uh, Greek medical texts, Roman medical texts, uh, and then uh, some of the other epics that we have from the time of Rome are also copied down during this time. Right, so they weren't just building stuff they weren't just studying just for the sake of studying. They were actually writing it all down so that they could actually have copies of it. And then you could take that copy, make another copy of it, and go send it to some other place, some other monastery or some other important city. And a lot of the times, those manuscripts were kept in the vaults of the local church or the local cathedral. Okay? Ready? In their like we said, in their studies, many manuscripts, both biblical and secular, were handed, uh, handed down and preserved for posterity. Some monasteries evolved into hospitals, some into pharmacies, 
some into hostels. So they were uh, hotels for local travelers. Right? These monasteries also had a profound economic impact due to the large swaths of land that were brought under their agricultural development. So the church is beginning to own large swaths of land. If I had a large swath of land at that time, would that make me rich or poor? That would make me filthy rich. Right? So during the late Middle Ages, a lot of these monasteries grew to be very powerful, very rich. And as that became, as they became more powerful and rich, the papacy said, we'll bring you all under our control. So while the monastery development is a great thing, it also has its unfortunate side. That as they got rich and powerful, they got rich and powerful. And what do the rich and powerful tend to do the common folk? Suppress. Okay? Suppress the common folk. They tend to persecute in some ways the common folk. Okay? Just as a side note, in 8589, the monastery of Monte Cassino was burned to the ground and looted by the Lombards. As a result, many of the monks fled to Rome. They took the rule with them and they opened new monasteries. This rule attracted the attention of the fledgling papacy, of whom Gregory the Great was the greatest supporter of the expansion of these monasteries. Right? That's Western monasticism. It does not change even today. The church is still landowners to large tracts of land. They do all sorts of really great things in days. Some of them you're like, mm, you know, not so much, but a lot of them still do. Any questions on monasticism? Do you see the difference between Eastern monasticism and Western monasticism? A lot more purpose in Western monasticism, right? Okay. Alrighty. Questions? Concerns? Comments? They would work to live together. Exactly. Exactly. That is exactly right. Yeah, it was part of the discipline was you keep your mind and your hands busy. You know, idle hands, you know, tend to bring a lot of problems. Right? So what you do is you got this community together and you learn how to interact. You learn how to develop agriculture. You learn how to develop uh, a vineyard. Uh, you learn how to develop animal husbandry. Right now, they already had those skills anyway. But you know, there's always different ways to do stuff. Uh, you learn different types of architecture, right? And then you can take that, sell it to that local town or city, right? Or you can just donate. They did that a lot too. Is a way to way to earn your keep and keep yourself busy and out of trouble. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, sir.
Can you give me an example? Oh, yeah, the product return. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I was like, so how, was, do we, how do we as, a, as people not break that? I think the first thing you have to do to realize that, that to not be afraid of it is that the divine office is literally just the prayer and singing of Scripture. That's literally all it is. You go through the entire book of Psalms in a day, and then you go through the New Testament once a week. I don't know any Protestant in his or her right mind that would say that's a stupid idea. The problem that Protestants see in it is, number one, they don't know their church history, which is why we're here today. Number two, we see those Latin words, and our first thought isn't Latin. It's Roman Catholic Church. And as I said before, this type of divine office is actually seen in all three branches of Christianity. The Roman Catholic Church. In Protestantism, it's seen especially in the Church of England. Right? And then the divine office is also taken care of in the Eastern Church. So I would say the best thing to do is A, to educate your congregation about that. Understand why they were doing it which is literally just worship, right? We, that's what we're doing tonight, to be honest, is a form of worship. Right? We're getting together and we are reasoning together as brothers and sisters in Christ and trying to learn something about how God's church develops historically and evolves historically in that, in that regard. Right? In the meantime, we're going to learn some good things, we're going to learn some bad things. You take your, what you learn and you move on, right? Don't do the bad things. I'm going to tell you right now, please don't do the bad things. So that's, that's what I would say. I'd be like, don't be afraid of the Latin words. You're going to have to drop on your own some of your own personal biases about it. Uh, but that just comes with getting familiar with it and maybe walking alongside somebody who understands a little bit better. right? But the divine office is just called the divine office because you're, you're reading God's word, you're doing work in God's word. That's all it is. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? All right, I got 10 minutes to go through the papacy. Let's do this. All righty. The origin of the word pope seems, comes from the Greek word papas, P-A-P-P-A-S, which means father. That was then gen... That was then changed to P-A-P-A-S, one extra, one less P, and that just means bishop or patriarch. The Romans took it, turned it into the word papa, P-A-P-A, and it means bishop, all right? When it first originated, papa or pope did not mean the bishop of Rome. I'm going to say that again. When it was first developed, the word pope does not mean the bishop of Rome. Alrighty? A pope was anybody in high office. So you'll read manuscripts that talk about Pope Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius we discussed last week. 
right? Athanasius the Black Dwarf, right? as his political and theological opponents called him. Right? You hear of Pope Alexander of Alexandria or Pope Cyprian of Carthage. Pope just was an honorific title. Right? The question then is, how does Pope become Roman? That's the question. Uh, the word papacy then is the Latin word for uh, Latin word papisha, and it literally just means the office of the pope. All right? Now, I want to do something real quick and let you know the differences between two words. If in Italian or Spanish, in Italian I say il papa, or in Spanish I say el papa, that means the pope. If in Italian or Spanish I say la papa, I just called you a potato. Okay? So if you ever meet the Pope, please do not start it off with La Papa. Because I will find you, I will hunt you down, and I will ask you, why did you just do that? Il Papa or El Papa means father. La Papa means the potato. So let's, let's be clear on that. Now, if you're mad at him, I guess you should call him the potato, but please don't. All right? As we said, in early times, the title was given to any important and respected bishop anywhere, not just Rome. All right? The question is, how then, how then did the Bishop of Rome come to enjoy the authority he had during the Middle Ages and continues to have in the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm glad you asked that question, because let's get into it right now. The origins of the papacy and the pope. The origins of the bishop, or the bishopric of Rome, are not 100% clear. Right? There's scholastic agreement that Peter did visit Rome, and he died there too during the Neronian persecution. Remember, he was crucified upside down during Nero's time. Right? He said, I am not worthy to die in the manner of my Lord. And so they're like, okay. How's that? Great. You know, I'm pretty sure that's how he did that. He's like, hey, this is fantastic. I love being nailed to the pieces of wood. Right? Right? However, when you look at lists of bishops from Rome as late as the, or as early as the middle and late second centuries, there is no agreement among who is the Bishop of Rome. There are multiple lists, and they have different names on them. So you're like, well, I can't claim apostolic succession out of this if the lists don't agree, right? So there is a possibility that the original Bishop of Rome was actually a college of bishops, meaning there were multiple bishops within the city of Rome, and that it was bishop by committee. So today Adam gets to be bishop of Rome. Congratulations, by the way. Right? Next week it's you. Next month sometime, Jamie, it's your turn. Right? Okay. I wish I had that authority. That'd be fun. Right? So it was bishop by committee. However, Rome was not an important city for the church during the first three centuries of the church. Now, I know Paul wrote an epistle to the Romans, 
but the important cities of the church at that time were Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem, not Rome. So this idea of apostolic succession all the way to Peter, based off of historical evidence, is garbage. Right? And I don't say that to offend the Roman Catholic Church. I just say, please learn your own history before you start telling other people what it is. Okay? Right? To further this point, even the theological center of the church isn't Rome. It's North Africa. Right? So the bar... Uh, also, the barbarian invasions brought the Bishop of Rome, is the barbarian invasions that brought the Bishop of Rome to greater power. Right? We're going to have to finish this up next week. But let me say this. Right? Because the Western Church became the keeper in the, of the remnants of ancient civilization, of order and justice, the prestigious bishopric of the West became the one at Rome, becoming the focal point for regaining unity that had been lost during those invasions. Alrighty. So Rome became the center of focus because it was a large city and when the barbarian hordes are coming through and wreaking havoc everywhere, you're going to go look to the biggest city. And that biggest city in the west is Rome. The biggest city in the east is Constantinople. Right? Because that's where the emperor was. Right? Okay? So basically, the bishop of Rome becomes the bishop of Rome out of default. Right, because of the barbarian invasions. He gains his authority because society was screaming for stability, and the Church of Rome gave the remnants of the Western Empire that stability. Here's Leo the Great, and there's the, there's the keys, the keys of St. Peter, and the crown of the bishop. Right? The first person to be, first bishop to actually hold all of what we just discussed together in one person is Leo the Great. His saint's day is November 10th for all of you wanting to know when to celebrate St. Leo's Saint Day. But there it is, right? He can be called the first pope. He, when, in, when Attila the Hun invaded in AD 52, in AD 452, it was Leo that marched out to Attila and said, don't sack Rome. Guess what? Attila didn't sack Rome. He turned around, marched off, and like a month later he was dead. Some sort of disease. Right? So he... St. Leo the Great told Attila the Hun, get out of here. And Attila the Hun got out of there. Right? In AD 455, when the Vandals sacked Rome, right, Leo was able to negotiate the fact that, hey, don't burn the city to the ground. Just take what you want and get out. And guess what? The Vandals were like, okay, we'll just take everything we want. And they left. He was able to do this because of his bishop position and the political situation at the time. He occupied a political vacuum. There is nobody willing to stand up to Attila the Hun or the Vandals, and Leo did. And guess what? When somebody that big stands up to two really famous people, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but man, Attila the Hun was Attila the Hun. Right? I don't know if I could have done that. Excuse me, Mr. Hun. Could you not sack Rome for me, please? Okay, yeah, thanks. Right. Hey, vandals, just just don't burn the city. Do whatever you want, loot. Just don't burn the city to the ground. 
right? The problem with Leo was that he was convinced that Jesus had made Peter and his successors the rock on which the church was to be built, and those successors were the bishops of Rome and therefore head of the church universal. Leo's head got ginormous, and he said, it's Peter's group, Peter and his successors, that make Rome important. Therefore, Rome is head of the church universal. He just, made, he just up and made that decision. Okay? Um, do you think Constantinople would have something to say about that? I bet they did. Right? And in Leo's arguments, we see the classical arguments given by the Bishop of Rome for papal authority even today. All right? We'll, uh, we'll get into Gregory next week because Gregory is important. And then we'll get into the Eastern Church. All right? But uh, any questions about what we learned or discussed today? No? Okay. So the two things to remember is that in early medieval Christianity, two institutions rise. Western monasticism and then the papacy or the papacy. Right? We'll finish up what Gregory the Great does all right, next week. Right? We'll learn about purgatory and we'll learn about penance. Those two things are brought in by Gregory the Great. Ready? Questions? No?